several weeks ago this month, now, if you're visiting with us tonight, I want you to know that I'm not, I'm not preaching to offend. I'm preaching tonight to educate. I'm preaching tonight to elevate. I'm preaching tonight to get our folks in on Godonomics. Not economics. Godonomics. Godonomics is kind of hard to explain. Can I share with you why it's hard to explain? It's hard to explain in a vernacular by which we can understand how that 90% will go farther than 100%. That's hard to explain. Outside of Godonomics, God's economy does not work the same as the world's economy. And that's why when I preach all over the country and preach on stewardship, folk look at me like a calf looking at a new gate. They don't know whether to jump or run. Because it just does not make sense that if I give away 10%, that this 90% I can buy more, it will go farther, last longer, and reap more benefits than the 100%. In Godonomics, What you are entrusted with is not yours. It's God's. That's hard to explain. My house, my kids, my car, my job, my life, my energy, my talent. But they, all of that had to come from somewhere because you didn't have any of it when you got here. You see what I mean? So tonight and this month, I've decided to preach a series of messages entitled Right on the Money. Every once in a while, my wife comes to me and says something, and I say, honey, that is right on the money. She came the other night and said, you know, you sure are good looking. I said, honey. Again, you're right on the money. I'm lying, right? I'm right on the money. (laughs) She said, you're right on the money. You're lying again, right? So, right on the money is a phrase by which we respond to an absolute accurate statement or a deed. If I say to you, that is right on the money in response to a quote, an act, or a deed. If I refer to, if I respond to you, that is right on the money. I am saying to you, that is exactly accurate without error. And so this month, I thought I would preach to you a series of messages, not to offend, okay, not to offend but to educate, to help, 
And I entitled these messages, Right on the Money. Tonight, I'd like to read for you out of the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I'd like to read for you just two verses, please, if you'd allow me to do that. And then I will respond and I'll be done in just a moment. The Bible says this in verse 6 of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, verse 6. This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. Now think about this a minute. If I sow one grain in the ground, Chances are I'll have one grain come up. And if all I can trust God with is one grain, it's not going to do any good to pray for a mortal crop. Now, that's not hard to explain. If I sow sparingly, how am I going to reap? Sparingly. Okay. Let's read the rest of the verse. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Do you get that? I, I said, do you get that? If I'm a farmer and I want a big crop, I'm not going to be stingy with the seed. And I'm not going to eat the seed because I'm hungry. If I want a bountiful crop, common sense will tell you, sow all the seeds you can. Have you ever seen it this quiet on Wednesday night? <laughs> well, let's read the next verse because that one was hard to look like. Every man according as he purposed in his heart. So let him, what's the next word? The context is given and likened unto sowing seed. If you came to me and said, Preacher, I've bought a 50-acre farm. And would you please give me your expert ranch and farm advice? Me and Andrew knows how to waste a seed. The only problem when I sow seed, it seemed like I sow it upside down. Because it never comes up and the Chinamen must be having a ball when they're reaping everything that I'm sowing. 
Now, if you were to come to me and say, Preacher, could I get your advice about farming? You say, now I have 50 pounds of seed. What's your advice? I said, so all of it. You said, but I'm hungry. I think I'll eat half of it. Then I would tell you that you're going to have half the crop you could have had if you had sown the seed. Does that sound about right? Okay. So, the Bible said, every man according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly. Have you ever seen a farmer sowing seed, weeping, Tears because it hurts so hard to put all this seed in the ground when I could have it and look at it. Grudgingly. Or of necessity. For God loveth what kind of giver? I would just like to bring you just a minute tonight. I, I don't want to I don't want to labor the the deal. Look at verse ten. Now he that ministers seed to the sore both ministers bread for your food. And multiply your seed. What's the next word? So. Now, God don't bless your bread. God gives us enough seed for our bread. And enough seed to sow. It's just. We're eating the seed and then can't afford to sow. And God only blesses the seed that is sown. That's the only place the harvest is. But that's not the best part of this verse. Look at the rest of it. And increase the fruits of your what? Righteousness. That's spiritual growth. That's spiritual understanding. That's spiritual perception. You understand that? Let me ask you. What kind of financial shape do you think you've been in if I hadn't started teaching biblical stewardship 30 years ago? What kind of financial shape would some of our folks be in this evening if they had not embraced the financial precepts of biblical stewardship that I began to teach 33 years ago? You know why our church is blessed? Because her people is blessed. 
Amen? Now, I'd just like to lay something on you a little bit tonight, just to help you a little bit. Unless you are absolutely void of the understanding of the Bible, giving is a vital part in God's church. Not to raise money, but to raise Christians. Not to raise finances, but to raise our faith and confidence in the God who says, I will do such and such if you will do such and such. Giving occupies a huge part of the New Testament. Let me give you something. 16 of the 38 parables in the Gospels, 16 of the 38 deals directly with money. 16 of the 38 parables in the New Testament in the books of the Gospels deals with money directly, not indirectly, but specifically with money. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels deals with money or possessions. More than any other subject, God deals with money. Jesus deals with money in the New Testament more than any other subject. For instance, there is approximately 500 verses dealing with prayer. Approximately 500 verses dealing with prayer. There are under 500 verses dealing with with faith. There's over 2,000 verses dealing with money, possessions, and how to handle it and how to earn it. I never preached a funeral on Wednesday night before. <laughs> Let me give you something. 1 Timothy 6 and 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Now money is not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. My grandmother died. She was in her mid-90s, I'm sure. And when her mind escaped her and was gone, she had, quote, that verse, but she'd misquote it. She'd quote that money is the root of all evil. I don't have idea why she left that word love out, but that's what Granny Fleety did. She'd quote that verse, man, until she died. She'd quote that verse. And I was looking for her purse. Because <laughs> anybody quoting that when she died got a hunk laid around somewhere, right? For the love of money is the root the beginning, the foundation, the mother, the womb, if you please, of all evil. Let me tell you what's wrong with politics. Money. Amen. And the love of money. Regardless of which crowd you're in and regardless of which side of the aisle you might be on or you might be watching uh, MSN and BULL, whichever, the love of money is the problem in America. Greed, bless your heart, 
greed for power and influence and finances and that's the problem. But for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now watch. While some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You, you can't serve God and mammon. Listen to it. You can't do it. You said, well, I'm doing a pretty good job. It ain't over with yet. The grand finale has not happened yet. The beautiful lady hadn't begun to sing yet. (laughs) What was that about that one, right? But the love of money is the root of all evil. While many have coveted after it, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. How many husbands has forsaken a family trying to earn a dollar? Amen. How many wives have run a family, couldn't control a dollar? I dare say if you and your wife has had one argument or one Baptist discussion in all these years, it probably revolved around money. Don't write another check out of my checkbook. Have you seen my wallet? It's always mine, always mine, mine, mine. Could I help you again? Just across the page in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. Charge them that are rich in this world. You say, I'm not rich. Go to Mexico and see if you are. Well, I'm not rich, preacher. Yes, you are rich compared to every family in the third world countries except those who's running the country. We are wealthy, are we not? Yeah, we're wealthy. We've got air conditioning. We've got automatic washers and automatic dryers. and we got everything automatic except someone said the other day, My wife and I have a wonderful marriage except for one small itty-bitty flaw. I'm quick on the deposit, but she's quicker on the draw. (laughs) Now, think about this. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us all things freely to enjoy. The problem is, ladies and gentlemen, if you and I are not careful, we'll begin to worship our riches more than we do the living God. And you cannot enjoy anything that you've got a lock so tight you can't count it. I'd just like maybe to get us right on the money. Now, 
I've been preaching long enough to know that if you want to get somebody tight in a service, just say money. <laughs> I mean, the spirit will take off like out the window. Well, a preacher in a certain church got up one Sunday morning, didn't announce it, and preached an entire hour on money. I can't imagine this, but some wealthy person in the auditorium really got angry and upset. He went home and started thinking about it. He said, I think I'll just show that preacher up. I'll invite that sucker out to my house. I'll feed him and I'll show him what God has given me. And so he calls the preacher, invites him out to his estate. And sure enough, the preacher accepted his uh, invitation and they had a beautiful lunch. After lunch, the man said, preacher, could I show you what I have? What I, I just want to show you something. And he walked him through the estate to the house, the backyard, the barns and every place. And after he got through and he looked at the preacher, so what do you think? The preacher said, man, this is great. He looked at the preacher and he said, now, go ahead and tell me that this don't belong to me. You mean to tell me after you've seen all this, this does not belong to me? Preacher thought a man and said, well, won't you ask me the same question a hundred years from now? I might could ask you the question next week. You might be able to ask me the question next week. Does it belong to us? What I was wondering the other day when I got my tax bill if it's mine, why do I have to pay somebody to use it? I mean, that don't sound fair to me if it belongs to me and I don't owe anybody for it. Why do I have to pay Johnson County so I can keep it? I, I just thought I'd throw out there. I'm not too sure if I know what I'm talking about or not. Satan has two goals. Two goals. Could I please give it to you tonight quickly? Satan has two goals for the Joshua Baptist Church. Two goals. Number one, to keep you at the house when services start. And he'll do anything in this world to get you to slow down on his church business. You're saying, I preach it. You don't know what I'm talking about. You're either too busy and he'll convince you of that or you're too tired. And kids got school, little league games. He'll do anything in the world to get us to miss church. We don't need church. How's things going? Pastors will do anything to keep them going to church. They'll even start canceling services. After all, the Bible don't say you need to go on Wednesday night and on Sunday night. I don't need this. See, the devil don't care if we cancel our 
Sunday night service. He wants us to cancel all of them. And I'm talking about gospel preaching, Bible preaching, Bible living, Bible believing churches. If I was the devil, I wouldn't mess with most of them. They're doing enough. Amen. But the devil has a plan and he's not going to be satisfied until you are out of church. And you'll have every excuse in the world to get out. But I was reading today in the book of Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. And I found a very unusual verse. I knew it was there. I preached on it years and years ago. Luke 4 and verse 16, it says this. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. As his custom was. As his custom was. He had a habit. A long-term habit. He developed it like he developed a path going from grandmother's house up to your house when he's a little bitty kid. Because of the repetition, Jesus started when he is real young and developed a long-lasting habit, a long-lasting custom of being in God's house when God's house was open. You didn't have to worry about Jesus. Well, it's Saturday night and I'm tired. I don't know if I'm going to get up in the morning or not. You might as well stay home if you had not got settled for then. Well, I've been working hard. That's a BB record. My heart cries for you. After what he's done for us, after the price he paid, in reference to the head of the church, you're tired. You don't feel like coming to church. Devil's done a good job, ain't he? Huh? Amen. Let me give you the next deal because that one didn't go over very well. Number one, the devil wants to empty the pews at the Joshua Baptist Church so that we'll cancel the services, park the buses, turn off the television cameras, shut down the hundred plus missionaries we support every single month and has never Never missed a payment to a missionary. The several home missions we support, the devil's going to try his dead level best to keep you out of church. And if you do not develop a long-lasting, God-honoring habit of being there, 
you'll start missing. And the devil will laugh because of the rewards you'll reap from this stinking world we live in. Secondly, he wants us as the members of God to fail to faithfully bring our tithes and our offerings to his house. Now, please don't get mad at me and say, you're preaching to me. No, I'm preaching to me because without what I'm talking to you about, I become a victim of the devil's onslaught on me and my family. Now, don't, don't, don't start saying you made me mad because I don't care. Now, honest, I do not care if you get mad. I would rather you be mad at me and get right with God as to act like you're my friend and be wrong with God. I don't need that kind of friends. I got one to stick closer than a brother. So I, I want to help you tonight. And let me help you. I want you to turn your Bible to the book of Malachi. And I know what you're going to say. And you're going to say, now, preacher, that's the Old Testament. And I, it's barely in the Old Testament. It's only one page out. That's about as close to the New Testament you can get, ain't it? What? You got two pages? Your Bible's too long. <laughs> Let me read for you now. Don't, don't, watch this. It's 7.57. I got three minutes. Verse 10. Malachi 3. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. That there may be meat in my house. And prove me. Now herewith saith the Lord of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now watch this. Verse 10. Bring ye. Is that too hard to understand? It don't say send ye. Does not say Mail ye. <laughs> Does not say email ye. The ye is more important than the bring. You understand that? Bring ye. Now notice. All the tithes. Is that right? All of them. Because Leviticus says that the tithe is the Lord's. It's holy unto the Lord. And so God says, I'm going to give you ten apples. I'm going to lay them out here. And I want you to take that first apple, that first one, and give it 
to somebody that needs it. After all, I'm going to let you have these nine. And if you give me that one, <laughs> I'll give you 10 more next week. I don't believe that. God said, won't you try it? Prove me. Just, just prove me. Prove me. Are you here? And just give me that one, give me that, that tithe and see if I won't open the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing you cannot receive. He says, bring ye all the tithes in the storehouse. So what it says, storehouse. Uh, I'm preaching, well, that, 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 that's it right there. There ain't no storehouse in the New Testament. There ain't no storehouse today. You want to do a little Bible study a minute? Let's find out where God wants the tithes and the offerings. Have a Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy. You say, that's the Old Testament. You're getting farther away from the New Testament. Ah, thank you so very much. Because I've been in dark about that for a while. Deuteronomy. Now, and I'll close on this with, these, with, these, with this right here. Deuteronomy, chapter 12. Where does God want me Today, in this age, where does God want me to bring the tithes and the offerings? Verse 11. There shall, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither. Now that's a redneck word for right there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. So, God told the nation of Israel, there'll be a place where my name will be called. There is where I want you to bring everything that I command you. Is that what your Bible said? Well, then what we must do is go to the New Testament and try to find a place like that. And would you believe there's a place like that in the book of First Timothy, chapter 3, and verse 15. Watch this now. Does anybody believe this book we got in our hand? But if I tarry long... Is that what your Bible says? But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how 
thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Does it say that? I said, does it say that? Which is the church of the living God. Well, bring it, don't send it. All of it, don't keep part of it. To the church. Well, why? That there may be meat in my house. The devil knows if he can cut the offerings to the extent we got to close the doors, it's just as good as if the pews were empty. Two ways he's going to try to shut your our church down by our attendance falling and our giving going south. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. One good thing about me, I don't have to finish what I wrote on that note because I'd like for you to come back. That's the reason I always let you out early. I don't know if Jamie wrote it down or not, but I, I read a quote today and I'm going to jump everything else. The world will not be one to Christ on what we can conveniently spare. The best way to break this church and to close the doors is to give what you think instead of what God thinks. And may I say, your verse said, as every man purposed in where? Given is a heart matter, not a head matter. You cannot, I cannot figure out Godonomics because that is by faith. Amen. Amen. And we are saved by faith. We walk by faith. We pray by faith. We live by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So, Godonomics is by faith, not by feeling, but by faith. Amen. Amen. Well, preacher, why do you preach on money? For your benefit. Not mine. For our Lord's benefit, not ours. We were going to lunch today and and, uh, my wife just mentioned this phrase, a higher purpose a higher purpose is anybody here familiar with Genesis 22 God told Abraham take Isaac your only son the one that you love to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice unto God any of you remember that 
You know what the argument is in the Middle East about which son was put on the altar, Isaac or Ishmael? The Muslims will tell you Ishmael was put on the altar. The Bible says Isaac was the one put on the altar. And Abraham took his son. Man, that'd be a tough offering for me. I'd have, I'd have said no unless it had been Andrew. <laughs> Why in the world would God ask Abraham, the father of our faith, to put his son, the promised seed to which all the world would be blessed? Why would he ask him to put him on the altar? And sacrifice him. Why? Surely Sarah must have questioned it. Isaac must have questioned it. I don't know. And Abraham puts him on the altar and raises a knife to stab in his heart. What would be the purpose of that? Before that knife ever pierced the heart of Isaac, God said, whoa, wait a minute. Now I know thou fearest me. It wasn't about sacrifice. It was about God knowing where Abraham was in his love for God. Wait a minute. No, no, you don't have to do that. I've got a, I've got a ram over there caught in a thicket. But now, God said, now I know. Now I know. Oh, he's the one who left the earth of Chaldees with his family without a promise where he's going. He's the one that left it all to follow God. He, he's the father of our faith. He's example for us all. And yet, not until the big offering come, did God say, now I know. There's more about Sunday than money. Are you listening? There's more about giving than money. What does God know about me is what's so frightening. 